You and I often want to feel safe. We like the idea of security. When we gather in a place like this, or we're at the bank, we're driving down the road, many of us have an acute awareness of our surroundings so that we can take the proper steps to feel secure, to feel safe. Some of you may carry a weapon with you in order to have a greater sense of safety or security. Something terrible was to happen, you could spring into action. And some of you buy the extended warranties on your car or on your TV. Just yesterday, I was looking at my phone through some notes, and I noticed the extended warranty on the TV I bought five years ago expires today. Never used it, of course. You know how it is. You're sitting at the car dealership, and the sales manager or you know, the finance individual you know, tells you all the terrible things that are going to go wrong with your car and why you need that extended warranty, never realizing why am I buying this car if it's going to have all these terrible things that are going to happen to it? It's going to break down. Maybe I should have be at the Chevy dealership where these things don't happen. A number of years ago, when we were living in the city of Baltimore, immediately you think, you better have a gun and you better have some sort of alarm on your home. And this is true. And so I took the steps to install an alarm on our home. And all that did was create a greater awareness of the fact that really bad things could happen. And of course, false alarms get you all amped up and excited that something terrible is happening when all it was is uh, my shoddy installation process of my alarm. All of this is to say that you and I take certain steps in our lives in order to feel safe, to feel secure. We buy the car with the extended warranty or the best safety rating. We make sure that our kids are in the best car seats in case of a terrible accident. We make sure we have smoke detectors working in case of a fire. But what about our eternal security? Perhaps you have spent time wrestling with, how do I really know? If I was to die today of a heart attack, if I was to die of some natural cause and just go to sleep tonight and never wake up, how do I know? What what sense of assurance can I have that if I were to turn up into heaven and stand before God, that he would accept me? Because I've read my Bible and there's no second chances. There's no do-overs. And so what am I to do? It's not like I can go, hey, hey God, time out. Can I go back? Um, you know, I promise if you'll send me back, I'll, I'll do better next time. I'll follow Jesus this time. No, there's none of those things. It's over. It's written in concrete. It's, it's done. Perhaps this morning you wrestle with this anxiety. Or perhaps you've been taught at some point in your life that Christians can lose their salvation. That Christians can backslide so far 
that they abandon the faith. Or, or perhaps even this morning, you know acutely that pain because of a, a loved one who has abandoned the faith. And you have all kind of questions swirling in your mind. Can Christians lose their salvation? This morning we're going to think about this particular theme, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, or as some have called it, our eternal security. How can we have assurance that we're saved? Now, just to give you a sense of where we are in this letter of Ephesians, we've, we started this back at the beginning of January, and we've been walking through it very slowly uh, and intentionally, and uh, we have been in the midst of a eulogy or a song of praise to God. This, this began in verse 3, and it continues down through the text we're going to consider. So verse 3 through 14 is, is just one long sentence in the original Greek text. Paul is just sort of taken in to the glory and wonder of God in salvation, and he just burst out in praise. And he began there in verse 3 uh, to, to mention all the spiritual blessings that are ours through faith in Christ. And he talked about in verses 4 through 6 the work of the Father, how the Father has eternally elected a people for His own possession. And then in verse 7 through 10, we, we thought about how the Son, the, the, the second person of the Trinity, how He's redeemed us and, and adopted us and, and we're a part of this family. And then last week, we thought about our inheritance that is ours in Christ. And, and then this week, thinking of the ministry of the Holy Spirit the security that is ours in Christ. All of these blessings come to us and fuel then our worship of God. We praise God because of the things He has done. He is praiseworthy. Well, friends, with that in mind, I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And again, we're going to look here at verses 13 and 14 this morning. But let's just look at the whole to see the the beauty of the, the picture, verse 3, is where I'll begin reading. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have an obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. But friends, these two verses seek to communicate that as Christians, 
we should continually praise God for the work of the Holy Spirit. The, the camera focuses in now on the work or ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. Uh, Paul is focused particularly here on the sealing or securing work of the Spirit, uh, the guaranteeing work that the Spirit has. But nonetheless, uh, we are to see reasons why we ought to worship and praise the Holy Spirit. Now, because we're Baptists, we tend to neglect this particular aspect or attributes of God. We neglect the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We focus a lot on what Jesus has done, which is good. We ought to do that. Uh, we have a robust understanding of our Father, which art in heaven. And, uh, but we tend to lack in, in understanding the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of God's people. And so my hope this morning is just for us to explore uh, the, the variety of ways in which the Spirit is praiseworthy because of His ministry. And so Paul outlines here four reasons why God's work of sealing us by the Holy Spirit is praiseworthy. So if you take notes, there's four main ideas I want us to think about this morning. Uh, Four reasons why we ought to praise the Holy Spirit. Number one, we ought to praise God for sealing those who trust the gospel. We're going to notice here there's a particular group of people that the Spirit seals. And then secondly... We ought to praise God for fulfilling his promise of the Holy Spirit. Uh, This ministry of sealing was long foretold, as we heard even in the assurance of pardon this morning. Thirdly, uh, we ought to praise God for giving us the Holy Spirit as a down payment. And, And this is, I think, probably the richest of all of the points in in this understanding of this down payment. What does it mean that that the Spirit is a guarantee of our inheritance? We'll we'll think about that in a moment. And then fourth and finally, we ought to praise God for the ministry or work of the Holy Spirit in our lives ongoing. So not only in our conversion, but in our sanctification. Uh, As Paul ends this in a sort of summary way, to the praise of His glory. To the praise of his glory. So let's look first here uh, in verse 13. We ought to praise God for sealing those who trust the gospel. Notice what Paul says. But you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He says that when you believed, you were sealed. Last week we thought about divine election. Several weeks ago, we thought about divine election. And, and oftentimes, what happens in churches and in ministries and even in your own understanding is that you can emphasize one doctrinal aspect at the neglect of another. Um, so one might be heavy thinking about you need to repent and believe. And of course, that's the very first words Jesus utters as he begins his ministry. Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand, Mark chapter 1. But when we focus so heavily on man's responsibility, we, of course, neglect what we thought of last week, and that's divine sovereignty, that God has sovereignly elected a people for his own possession. But even then, we can focus merely on divine sovereignty at the neglect of human responsibility. And so as Christians, uh, biblically-minded Christians, we want to hold these in tension, as the Bible does. 
Notice here that the Apostle Paul is not frustrated by God electing a people and then calling those very same people those who repented and believed, those who trusted in the gospel. Paul makes emphatically clear that God saves only those who repent and believe. He's not so concerned with, well, you believed because you were the elect, or you believed because you were predestined to believe. None of those things. No, no, he commends them for their response to the truth through belief. This is what he commends in the, in the beginning here. Look, look again with me. Verse 13. In him you also, when you heard and believed, When you heard and believed. Those are the two verbs that describe the audience that he's writing here. And they're emphatic. The you there. You heard it and you believed in it. The gospel is communicated through the means of oral communication or written communication. You did not receive the gospel by looking at the stars in the sky. You did not receive the gospel by putting plants under a microscope. Though all of those things lead to worship, none of them revealed the gospel. You see, the gospel has to be communicated. I mention all of this because what propels our evangelism is the divine sovereignty of God. Because God has elected a people for his own possession, we go and take the gospel universally and call sinners to repentance and faith. And so we, we, we must guard against a theology that just sort of says, well, if, if God's planned it, it's going to happen. We just sort of sit in the pew and do nothing. Now, friends, someone in these individuals' life, these real people, Just like you you and I, that had children, that had jobs, who had moms and dads. Someone got off the couch, if you were, and took the gospel to them. Communicated the good news of Christ. And they responded with faith or belief. Notice here he says that you heard and you believed Well, what did they hear? Well, they heard the word of truth. They heard the truth. Interesting, isn't it, how he phrases that? And then he appositionally restates it, the gospel or the good news of your salvation. They heard the truth. What what truth? Well, they heard the truth about God. That God is a good God. He's a creator and he he made you and I in his image. They heard the truth about how man rebelled against God in choosing to live life their own way, what we call sin. They heard the truth about themselves that they are rebels against God, that they, they hate God. They heard the truth that's right here in chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's what they heard. They heard the truth. They heard the truth that, that Christ came to live the perfect life that you and I should have. They heard the truth that Christ died 
as a sacrifice on Calvary's cross, not because of anything he had done wrong, but as a substitutionary atoning sacrifice in the place of all those who would repent and believe in Christ. They heard the truth about how three days later that Jesus got out of the grave and is alive today as a proof that his sacrifice was accepted by the Father and that he defeated death. He vindicated. He heard the truth that only those who stop living life their way and follow after Christ by trusting in Christ will be saved. You see, the gospel is good news because the truth tells us that we deserve the wrath of God for our rebellion against him. And this makes perfectly clear and good sense, doesn't it? God made us. We said, we don't want to follow you. God's obviously angry. And he says, okay, I'm going to kill you. But in his grace, he says, I'm going to save you. Rather than killing you, I'm going to kill my son. And if you'll just follow him, then you'll have eternal life. They heard the truth and they trusted in Christ. They depended on him. You see, faith or belief is about reliance. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 4 that that we are relying on the work of Christ. We're depending on it. It's it's nothing in us. This is why in chapter 2 he will say that we are saved by grace alone through faith. Faith alone, without works. We're not saved because we are awesome. We're not saved because of some awesome thing that we will do. We are saved solely by the finished work of Christ. We believe for a righteous verdict. Faith for a righteous verdict. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Peter writes this. He said, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. When you believe upon Christ, there's a great transactional change that happens. All of your unrighteousness is credited to Jesus' account. And all of Jesus' perfect righteousness is credited to your account. So your bank account goes from a deficit to a surplus. Therefore, you're accepted not because of your righteousness, but because of the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, that's what it means to be a Christian, to repent and to believe in him. Those are the ones that the Spirit seals. Those are the ones who are set apart. You see, friends, there is a plethora of false gospels vying for your attention every day. Do this, and you'll be happier. Drink this, and you'll be stronger. And these false gospels only lead us to death. By saying that the gospel is the truth makes this point, the singularity of the gospel makes it exclusive. The Apostle Paul is saying that the gospel is the only way you can be saved. There's nothing you can do. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross, I cling. 
Friend, what a wonderful truth to know that the good news has come to us through Christ. And those this morning, friend, if you're not a Christian or you're just sort of exploring these things, friend, I pray that you would think more deeply about this gospel that you've just heard preached, that you might depend upon him and therefore be sealed by the Spirit's work. As Christians, we praise God that he sealed us in him through our faith in Christ. This leads us to the sort of second point I want us to think about. As we think about this sealing work of the, of, of, of the Spirit, we notice here in verse 13 that, that this is the fulfillment of God's promise to us in the gospel. Look again at verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, what happened? Well, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You were sealed. You were marked. His ministry to the elect is one of setting apart by marking them off as God's people. The word that is used here is, of course, the word you may be familiar with in the book of Revelation. Um, if you've been around Christians for long or, or read much in Christianity, you understand that there's this mark of the beast. And uh, fascinatingly, it's, it's interesting how so many Christians are afraid of receiving this mark. Uh, but the same word is used here that's used there. And, and that mark was for the unrighteous, the, the, the ones who are condemned to hell. And here we have those who are the righteous. They're, they're, they're marked. They have a mark also. They're, they've been sealed, set apart. He brands us as his. See, the language of sealing comes from the arena of official decrees. If there, if there was a decree that the emperor would send out, he would drop some wax on it, take a signet ring and press it in there as a, as a seal, a sign, no different than similar to our notary publics. They, they put a seal on there. Or in my office, I have you know, seals on all my books. I have a little, little thing that's stamped into the front page it says, you know, from the office of, you know, Chris Snyder. Why do I do that? Well, because I don't cr trust Christians because they like to steal my books. I can be like, that's mine. How, how, no, how do you know it's yours? Well, it's my name's in it. That's mine. It's no different than, than farmers, uh, you know, branding cattle, you know, so that when cattle get mixed up together, you can determine, okay, well, that one's mine, that one's yours, that one's mine, that one's yours. But in the same way, the Holy Spirit indwelling us as believers is a seal or a, a mark that says, that's mine. God brands us as his. He can distinguish us, the sheep from the goats, because we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This is how you have assurance, you see, because when you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit starts leaving things around in your life where it's like, yep, the Holy Spirit's been there. No different than your children leaving their Legos all over your house. You're like, yeah, they've been there. There they are. They're, 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 they're everywhere. Right? Friend, the Spirit leaves fruit in your life as evidence for you that He's been around, that He's, he's there, He's with you. It's a wonderful truth that the Spirit has been given to mark us off but more than that, it's also a promise that was given long ago. 
I read one of those promises from Ezekiel chapter 36 earlier in our service. You could look at Jeremiah 31, 31, where God promises a new covenant where he'll put his spirit. Friends, these are hundreds of years earlier than Pentecost when the spirit is poured out upon the church. Of course, Jesus, what did Jesus promise his disciples? In John 14, he says, hey guys, I, I know you're sad that I'm leaving, but it's, it's for your best. You see, if I stick around, Jesus says, then the Spirit, the Helper, can't come. But when I leave, the Helper is going to come, and He's going to teach you all things. He's going to lead you in the truth. He's going to indwell you, and you'll have me wherever you go. And of course, as we read on in the book of Acts, uh, we see there at Pentecost the, the outpouring of the Spirit upon the people of God. I want you to notice something here. He says that when you believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We do not believe that there is a second blessing or second baptism of the Spirit. We believe it's a, it's a, it is at the moment of salvation. Uh, when we are quickened, we have eyes to see. The Spirit seals us, marks us off at that moment. We're not waiting for some future event in our life. That, that, that belief, that doctrine comes from a text just like this. That we are sealed at that moment. More than that, we also understand that, that God is a promise-keeping God. One could say that the Holy Spirit is the proof that God keeps His Word. That His Spirit was poured out. That Jesus isn't a liar. That His Spirit indeed came. Friend, let the Spirit's fruit in your life be all the evidence you need of your assurance. And at the same time, we ought never to hold out assurance to someone who does not have the fruit of the Spirit in their life. That's why we affirm regenerate church membership. We want to see fruit. Why? Because we're judgmental, we're legalistic. No, because I don't want to offer you any hope of eternal life if there's no evidence that the Spirit has sealed you. That would be the most unloving thing I could possibly do as a pastor, as a father, as a husband, as a friend, is to give you a eternal security, assurance of eternal security, when there's no evidence that the Spirit has ever come into your life. Friends, God is praiseworthy because of the sealing work. He's demonstrated that He is a promise-keeping God. He is worthy of our trust. And then look here at verse 14 how the apostle shifts to yet a third reason. A third reason. We ought to praise God for giving us the Holy Spirit as a down payment. And Paul here shifts from the sealing ministry of the Spirit to the securing ministry. So, so I think it's helpful to distinguish these two aspects of the ministry of the Spirit. First, he marks us off. Then the Apostle Paul says that he is a down payment or a guarantee on our inheritance. He not only marks off the elect, he also is the down payment or first installment in our inheritance. Now think with me for a moment what he's saying here. Look at the text again. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So you and I are in the already and not yet. We already have this inheritance. It's ours, right? It's waiting for us. 
but it's not yet ours. We don't have full possession of it. Well, how do we know God's going to come through on his promise? How, how do we know that that inheritance has my name on it? Well, because the Spirit was the very first payment in a series of installments that is your inheritance. The, the language that the Apostle Paul uses here comes from the world of finance, right? When we take out a loan or we, you know, buy a piece of land or buy a car, you know, we have to put a down payment on that. You have to put some percentage down on that. Well, not only is it a promise to pay, but it also is a skin-in-the-game kind of situation, isn't it? You know, the reason why lenders want you to do that is because, that one, they want you to prove that you have the financial means in order to produce a certain amount of wealth in order to put that deposit down. If you come and say, you know, oh, I don't have that, they're going to be like, well, we're not sure if we want to give you that loan or not because it seems you can't even save, you know, $1,000. Why would we give you a loan for, you know, $50,000? And so that's why lenders do that. It's a, it's a first payment, a first installment on the promise that you're going to make subsequent installments. Now get your mind around that for a minute. The Holy Spirit is the first payment in many, many, many more payments to come. The Spirit. Friend, this is overwhelming. The Spirit is a foretaste. A foretaste. Just, a, just an appetizer of what awaits you in glory. The Spirit who awakened you to your sin, the Spirit who sustains you in your everyday life, the Spirit who produces that fruit in your life, that Spirit who continually drives you back to the Word, the Spirit who sustains you when you're weak, the Spirit who encourages you when you're depressed, the Spirit who the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8 is the one who prays for you when you can't even muster up a single prayer. The helper, the advocate. We could go on and on in the way the, the, the way the Spirit ministers to it. And to consider all of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is but a foretaste of what awaits you in glory. What an inheritance. What an inheritance it must be. What a glorious truth it must be that, that, that the Apostle Paul was right. That when we believe upon Christ, we receive every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What more can he give us than his spirit? Yet even that is, is, is a down payment on many more to come. Friend, look no further than the spirit to see the love of God for you in Christ. That he would seek to dwell among you. That he would seek to live in you, working in your life to transform you and make you more and more like Jesus. Friends, this is why we do not believe that those who are sealed and who are guaranteed to receive an inheritance can lose that inheritance. So, well, what about the, the guy who falls away? What about the one who maybe was even a pastor 
and shared the gospel with you and preached really good sermons and, and you emulated his life and then later on he, he recounted and deconstructed his faith. What about him? What about the sister in your life who was, who was faithful to lead you and to share the gospel with you and discipled you and, and helped you follow Jesus and was a better mom and a, and a better wife because of her? What, and then she recounted later, what about them? See, the Bible says those who have saving faith have enduring faith. The only faith that truly saves is the faith that endures all the way to the end. It's not that it's dependent on our faith, it's just the, the fruit of the Spirit in our life. You see, when the, when the Spirit gives us faith, the, the Spirit gives us enduring faith, not faith that fizzles or it's fuzzy. It's faith that lasts. The Apostle Paul, or excuse me, the Apostle John faced this question in the congregations that he shepherded. And someone wrote to him and says, hey, Pastor John, there was a group of people who left our church. They abandoned the faith. John, Pastor John, what are we supposed to make of this? Have, have, I mean, I thought, I'm worried that I'm not saved. Now, am I going to make it to the end? I, I'm concerned about my own security now. What am I to do? And, and so John wrote him a letter back. In 1 John, in chapter 2, he says this, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been with us, or of us, they would have continued with us. They would have endured. But they went out that it might become plain to all that they are not of us. Verse 20 is the key. But it's okay. Let me encourage you here, he says. But you have been anointed by the Holy Spirit or the Holy One. And you have knowledge. How do I know? Because the Spirit's work. What about those who fall away? What are we to conclude? They never were born again. They never were truly saved. Jesus says that there will be many seeds sown in different types of soil. But there's only one soil that produces a crop. And friend, that is true. And, and as a congregation, we are going to have wheat and tares sown together. And there will be those who put on a really impressive show but they're nothing more than hypocrites, play actors. They, they, they showed off for a while, but like chaff that's thrown when you're harvesting wheat, it's blown away into the wind, and it becomes no more. Friend, I say all of this to encourage you. Let not the failings of others discourage you in your journey as you follow Christ. Look not to your ability, but to the anchor to which you hold. Look for the evidence of the Spirit in your life. Love and joy, peace and patience and understanding. 
Look for the variety of fruit that the Spirit holds out. Let me give you one. Do you have a growing desire for the Word of God? Do you have a growing desire in your life to want to speak to God through prayer? Friend, those are just a a few basic means of, of evidence of the Spirit's work in us. God is worthy of praise. Let, let our hearts, I, I be just be overwhelmed at his sealing work and at his guaranteeing work that he has been given to us as a down payment of many more installments to come. Friend, never listen to the doubts of the evil one, but see the Spirit as evidence of God's love and let it propel you into perpetual worship. And that's where we end right here in this final point. The final reason that we ought to praise God is for the ongoing work of the Spirit. Look again at verse 14. The Apostle Paul began with praise and he ends with praise. The work of our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, is the fuel that ignites our praise. We, if you've truly been saved, you know, we don't need to you know, beat the music up a little faster. We don't need to you know, sing particular songs that really make you happy. No, friend... If you've been saved, there's something in you that is sort of like, I can't help it. I can't shut up about Jesus. I just can't help it. God has done so much for me. And so we sing, we praise. Friend, as we reflect on the ministry of the Spirit in our lives, it ought to naturally lead us to worship. We know how vile we were. And so any goodness in us is, is attributed to God and his, his Spirit's work, and we just can't help but thank Him for it, to praise Him. The Spirit inspires our worship. The Spirit inspires our worship. And so, friend, take an occasion to reflect the Spirit's work in your life that it might be then fuel, kindling for the, the fires of your worship. Perhaps your worship is weak because there's no evidence of the Spirit's work in your life. Cultivate the Spirit's work in your life and you'll see greater worship because it it fuels our perpetual praise of God. It is His work from beginning to end. Therefore, He alone is worthy to praise. Praise Him for His quickening work. Thank you, Spirit. While I was living like a fool, you graciously awakened my eyes to the truth. When I hated you, you lovingly opened my eyes. While I was on my road to Damascus, you took the scales from my eyes that I might see your glory. Praise Him for marking you off as one of God's elect. Praise Him for that. Thank you. Because if I was picking the team, I wouldn't have picked myself. Because I know how worthless I am. I bring nothing to the team. I bring nothing to this kingdom. But only by grace. Praise Him for securing you. I know I would have messed this up long ago had it not been the Spirit. And trust me, As you get to know me over the years, you're going to find out something really quick. I'm surprised he hasn't messed up before. Friend, I have. 
And I will. And you will. But it's okay. The Spirit is the one who, who secures us, who keeps us. Friend, praise Him that when you lose your grip and your footing slips, that He picks you up and helps you one step further home. He will not let us lose our soul. Praise the Spirit for the fruit that He bears. Praise the Spirit for that love that you have for people that are hard to love. Praise the Spirit for the joy that wells up in you when you consider the grace of God. Praise the Spirit for that patience that you once didn't have, but now you have. Praise the Spirit for the understanding, the insight, and the knowledge that you've grown in just in this year alone. That's the Spirit. Praise Him. Praise Him for His intercessory work. Spirit, thank you for praising, excuse me, for praying when I don't want to pray. When the tears are so great and overwhelming that I can't come up with a single thing to say, the Spirit intercedes for you. And finally, praise the Spirit for getting you home. Friend, the only reason you're going to get there at the end of the day as you look back on your life isn't because you, know, you took a, a seminar or because you were in attendance of church every week or because you studied your Bible or because you were faithful in prayer, all wonderful things. But at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, when the books are opened and our life is played out before us, The only thing you'll be doing isn't, hey, look how awesome I was there. Hey, I remember that. I did it. No, it'll be, Spirit, you were there. I didn't even see the way that you got me through that. You gave me the faith. When I was faithless, you were the one that encouraged me when I was ready to quit, when I was ready to throw in the towel, when I was ready to leave my family, abandon it all. You were the one, Spirit, who sustained me. You were the one when, when I was just, just wildly in sin. It was you all along. It was you. Now, as the Apostle Paul says, we are more than conquerors, are we not, brothers and sisters? In all these things, because of the Spirit's work. For I am sure that neither death nor life Those are some pretty powerful things. Neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, spirits that you and I can't even see present here today, a supernatural world can't take us from the hand of God, nor things present, nor things to come. We don't know what's around the corner. We don't know what's coming today. We don't even know what's coming tomorrow. But friend, tomorrow cannot take you from the hand of God. The unknown, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, there is nothing in this creation that can take you and snatch you from the hand of God. Praise be to God. Let our praise continually be uttered for this God who is gracious to save, to mark us off, 
to guarantee that we'll make it, all so that we will spend an eternity worshiping the one true and living God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our eternal security that is ours through Christ Jesus. To know beyond a shadow of a doubt, if we have trusted in you, in the finished work of Christ, that we are saved, we are secure. That though the sea billows roll, though the waves crash upon our souls, though even this morning we are tempted with doubt, discouragement, and anxiety, You hold us fast. That it is well with our soul because of your grace and the sustaining power of your spirit. Father, we glorify you this morning. In the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.